I'm curious, what has been, once you think this through, let me ask the question carefully, even though we should be wide awake, uh, we have woken up to the frozen tundra of Dallas. I want you to just listen to the question. What is the most amazing, breathtaking house you have ever seen? I don't mean nice house. I mean one that when you see it, you just can't believe it with your eyes. I spent way too long yesterday looking at some of this. Some of the houses like Oprah Winfrey's $100 million estate that exists, and it just was showing room after room after room. Interesting thing is she has more bathrooms than she does actual rooms to be in. I don't wonder why she needs so many bathrooms, but it's, it's a massive estate that she has. Mark Cuban's house here in Dallas. You see how breathtaking it is. Bill Gates and his over $100 million mansion up in the state of Washington. And most of what costs the most in that house is not the house itself, but all the technology that runs through it and his pools and his rooms and just, it's kind of woven together. You know, the unique thing is you don't have to necessarily see big houses to see special houses. If you've ever done some Airbnb, you can find average homes like our own when you go and stay in them, but there are some Airbnbs that are really cool. Like you can stay in an igloo house, or you can stay in a castle kind of house. That's in Indiana. I didn't even know they had those kind of houses in Indiana. You can stay in a UFO if you wanted to, and for those of you who even know this show, they have a bluey house if you want to go in and stay in a house just like, just like the show. When you see a house, in one sense, it tells us about the person who owns it. It tells us about their taste and their style, something about that person. But also when you see a house, it tells us about the builder. It tells us about the person who designed it and planned it and brought it to its fruition. And you think then about the magnitude of that meaning when we think about the world, the world that our God created. Of, of all the evidences of the goodness and the greatness and the sovereignty of the personal touch of our God, it's woven into the things that he creates. This weekend, our focus has not been on the creation. Our focus has been on the creator who made this creation and what it shows us about our God. And the focus is not just learning things about him, about our God who is alive, but it's knowing him. The fact that this God doesn't just create a world and stand at an arm's distance, but he invites us to know him. And so you think of the, the phrases we just sang. Our God, whose voice the prophets heard. This is the God that we should know who speaks through his inspired word. We should know. Our God, whose son upon a tree, a life was willing there to give, that he from sin might set man free and evermore with him could live. And even as Jarrett will wrap up with us this morning, he is our God, the great I am, that personal relationship that's invited between us and our creator. We're looking today at, in him we live and we survive. I want us to go to Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, the psalmist shows us essentially God's house. I love that Jarrett described that in his lesson on Saturday. He shows us God's house and that's essentially what he does, is he wants you to see the house, and in seeing the beautiful house, to come away impressed with the builder of the house. To be all the more impressed with the one who made it. So I'm going to put some building blocks on the screen about how to look at Psalm 104. We're not going to read the entirety of the psalm. I just want to pull out some sections from here, and then we'll see how our phrase, in him we live and we survive, is woven into the conclusion of this amazing psalm. The psalm really begins with the Creator's introduction. Verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
Oh Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the winds. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fires his ministers. Look at the idea. God, the one who created everything, is obviously above his creation, but the way it describes it is if God is just using and manipulating creation as if it was nothing more than a box of Legos on a table or clay on a spinning wheel. He wields the wind. He clothes himself with light. He walks and moves among the clouds. He is above and before. In fact, verse 1 says it great. He is the great God. What he goes on to then is to show what he made. He talks about his relationship with creation, that he is above and greater than all of it. And then he just starts to walk through creation. He starts with the earth, the formation of the earth, and he uses such neat language. If you go down to verse 6, where he says, you covered it, that is the earth, with the deep, as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. And that's what's so fascinating. Is he talking about the very beginning? And now the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters? Or does this take us to Noah and the fact that God covered the earth like a blanket with the flood and covered all the world? Either way, God has done both. And you both see at verse 7, whatever context you want to look at that phrase in, in verse 7, at your rebuke, at God's word, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. That's one of the language. God spoke and everything went exactly where it's supposed to go. The mountains went to their formation. The valleys went to their place. From the heights that we have all around us, the grandeur of grand scale, to the depths, to the canyons, to the islands that exist on isolated oceans, to waterfalls that careen in beautiful hills and valleys. God spoke and creation followed in suit. God gave orders and his creation listened, finding its place. What he goes on to describe them is water, vegetation, animals, and the sun. But what's unique, though, is that while he's describing each of these elements of creation, he's showing the wisdom of God to have an orderly, succinct, beautiful, functioning world. And so in verses 10 to 13, he talks about the place. He sends forth a place of water. He sends forth springs in the valleys in verse 10. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. God made it to where water knows where it's going to go, and everything that needs and requires water receives that water. Whether it's, if it's the valleys that have their streams that water the vegetation along the way, or the cycle to where water will go up into the air and evaporate and come back down, giving its nutrients to all living things, God provides exactly what it is, the nutrients of water that, <clears throat> that this earth so desperately needs. Verse 14 to 17 talks about, about what the earth needs in, ter in terms of food. He says that he causes grass to grow in verse 14 for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad. 
so that he may, his face may, may be made to glisten with oil, and the food which sustains man's heart. In other words, just as God gives water, and he makes it in such a, a unique and creative way where it sustains itself continually, he also provides food, food from the ground. It's not independent in verse 14 of our work. What's good for man is food. What's also good for man is to work for our food. And so God made an earth that could be toiled and cultivated and worked and improved and and added upon. In verse 17, he talks about the habitation and the trees for birds. It's fascinating, isn't it? He didn't make trees how we draw trees as a three-year-old, to stick with a big bush on top. No, he made trees with limbs so that birds could find their homes. And he goes on down in verse 18 to say he made a home for all living things the wild goats in the mountains, even the sun has its place of habitation. And then he talks about the sun. The sun comes and it goes and it knows where it's going, when it's going, and it has a reason. It marks seasons and times. It gives light and and warmth for the day, but then during the night it provides the the occasion for sleep for man and for those nocturnal animals to come about and to do their, their biddings. The main point is this. It's all summed up, summed up in one verse. If you look at all the ways that God allowed this creation to both move and function to where nothing is, is involved in chaos, everything that is living has exactly what it needs to survive. It has a place, it has a home, it has nutrients, it has sustainability. The main point is this in verse 24. In wisdom, you have made them all. Who could possibly try to understand if you were to try and create not just a habitation, not just an ecosystem, if you were to create the worlds in such a way that every bit of it exists in perfect, sustainable harmony. That's the world our God has made. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. But look at the way God has made a world that does exactly what it is it's supposed to do, simply by his brilliance and his wisdom. This world, Psalm 19 reminds us, declares his glory. It's obvious that someone made this world. But the world also points back to the existence of God, just like a signature at the bottom of a letter or an artist who signs the bottom of, of his painting, this creation is God's signature to the world of his existence. And that's one thing that Paul brings up in Romans 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without an excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Here's what we're saying. God made a world that makes it inexcusable, that is without reason to deny his existence. Everything within this world points back to the existence of the master creator, What he's saying here is it's not that man didn't have a reason to believe in God. It's that man didn't want to believe in God. 
There's a difference between not having the ability or not having the evidence and then not having the desire. And that's what he's talking about. It's a lot easier to create a God after my own invention, to create a God that's more like me, who thinks the way that I think, who reasons the way that I reason, than it is to submit to the one God who has a will, a mind, an authority, and a plan for my life. In him we live and we survive. Isn't that the crux of it? That's one of the things I love from Jared's lesson on Saturday. It's not that the world doesn't know that there is a God. It's will I submit to that? Will I accept it? Will I allow what is true? Will I allow where the reason and the evidence points me to, to direct my steps, even if in knowing that God and knowing more about him demands a change in my life? We're just go back here. We're going to look at the very end of Psalm 104. I wanted you to see how in the end of this psalm, we see our, fr- our phrase, in him we live and we survive, woven in to how the psalmist concludes this really interesting psalm or song. First of all, my life de- is defined by God. Look at verse 31. 31 of Psalm 104. My life is defined by God. First of all, he says, let the glory of the Lord, in verse 31, endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. I love that. The main emphasis, the main focus, the main purpose of a creation is the honor and the glory of its creator. I want you to hear that again because I want to take you on a little journey on the screen. Let me hear that again. Got a little sleepy. He's getting out of your eye. Hear that again. The main focus, the main purpose of a created thing is the honor and the glory of its creator. Now, we hear that different ways in Scripture. Let me show you one way we hear that all throughout Scripture. I'm going to show you one, and you may say, I've, I've heard that, and then I want to show you how it's found again and again and again. You remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You ever notice that in Psalm 23, that when he is restoring my soul and guiding me in the paths of righteousness, that little phrase at the end, that he is restoring and he is leading me for his name's sake. For the sake of his name, his honor, and his glory. Do you know how often that's repeated through Scripture? Psalm 79 and verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Hear that? Forgive my sins, not for me, not for my salvation, not for my glory, but forgive my sins for your glory and for your name's sake. Psalm 115 and verse 1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Even if we come all the way to the New Testament, back in the book of Romans, notice how it's found there in the first chapter. That Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Why? Why did Jesus rise from the dead and bring this gospel and expect those, even among the Gentiles, to obey what the gospel teaches for his glory? 
for his name's sake. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's all about him. Even in 1 John 2 and verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why are your sins forgiven? So we can go to heaven. So our life would be grand. Our sins are forgiven for his glory. The great things he does points back to the greatness of the one who does them. For your name's sake. I think a good way of summarizing is this. this. Whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do all to the glory of God. So, whether if as a student or child or a sibling or a worker or co-worker or boss or a neighbor or brother or sister in Christ, whether if what I do is great and significant and noticed by many or if what I do is seemingly small and not noticed by anyone at all, Do all to the glory of God. I want you in your Bibles, keep your marker in Psalm 104, and I want you to go with me to Isaiah 10. We're not going to have it on the screen. Go in your Bibles to Isaiah 10. I want to paint an illustration that's going to seem absolutely ridiculous, but just stay along with me. It's the point that's made in Isaiah 10. I bought a new mower not long ago, maybe a year or two ago. It's one of those fancy ones that's electric and it doesn't make a lot of sound, which is actually kind of dangerous, I think. I think you need to know when something's coming your way. It's chopping up the ground. It's this fancy little mower and it goes real fast and it zips across the yard. I have never mowed the yard, put my mower up, and then after putting the mower back in its place, heard my mower say, I bet that was the best cut yard you've ever seen. You're welcome. Never heard to say that. Never woken up in the morning and my coffee maker say, I know you're thankful for this because this is going to be the best thing you drink today. You're welcome. I've never heard that either. We're talking a lot here today, but out in the parking lot, we don't have Fords and Toyotas. We don't have any Dodges out there singing the praises saying, I brought my people here the best today. They're tools. They are tools designed with a function. They are pushed, or they're programmed, or they're driven. They exist for a purpose. In Isaiah 10, God describes the nation of Assyria like a rod in his hand. Isaiah 10 and verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I will send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. You hear it? You, Assyria, are like a rod in my hand. Go down to verse 12. So it will be when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by my power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding and I have removed boundaries of the people and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one who flapped its wings or opened its beak and chirped. Look at verse 15. Is the axe to boast? 
over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Do you hear the point God is saying here? Assyria, all you're boasting about all of this you think you claim to do is just as ridiculous as if my coffee maker today were to say, I did that. You ought to be really thankful. Look how good I did today. The main point even here down in verse 25 is he says, this boastful rod is going to feel the fury of a rod before too long. They will be judged. But that's the point. Do you see our struggle? I know I'm to do all to the glory of God, but how easy is it to forget that at the end of the day, we are all but servants. We all exist not for our glory, not for our recognition, but to His. So let's kind of draw that here to its conclusion. My life is not about me. My life is not about me. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My life is not about me. This new year, 2024, and all that's before before me in this year, it's not about me. It's not about my plans and my dreams and my goals. It's not about my resolutions or reminders, however I want to look at that. Whatever it is I do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What's he saying? That my highest priority is God's priority. And my greatest plan is his plan. And so this new year is not about me. It's about God. This church is not about me. Either if you want to look at it in terms of church universal, all the saved people, or this church here at Campbell Road, it's not about me. Ephesians 3, beginning verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Look, to him be glory in the church. In which church? Well, obviously all saints everywhere, but that also involves this local church. It's not about me. It's not about my preference and my opinion and my way. And I wonder, brethren, if some of the conflicts and the bumps that we have with one another... If some of the tensions that we believe there's just no way of resolving this would be solved if we remembered it's not about me. This church is not about me. It's not about my feelings. It's not about my preferences. It's not about my way. It is about the glory of God. Because at the end of the day, I'm not the one wielding the tool. I am the tool. I am the servant. I am the one who simply, in all that I would ever amount to and do, have simply just done what it is the Lord has asked. I just exist to honor and glorify Him. Paul would say, when Christ, who is our life, in Him we live, my life is wrapped up and completely defined in God. That is who I am. I am his. I am his servant. I am his child. And all that I do is for his glory. The second thing we're going to see back in Psalm 104, go back to Psalm 104, is how my life is dependent upon the Lord, on God. Psalm 104, just a few verses before, in Psalm 104, beginning verse 27, says, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season, to give it to them, to gather it up. 
You open your hand and they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit and they are created. You renew the face of the ground. What's he saying? All creation depends on God. We depend on God for our breath, for the beating of our heart, for the food on the table, for the homes over our heads. God is the one all creation looks to to be sustained. Have you ever seen a ladder and said, nope, no, I'm not doing that. I wouldn't do that. Like there's some people who get on ladders and I'm really curious the amount of thought that went into getting up on that ladder. Like there are some of these where at some point, either they didn't think this through Because here's the thing, the language of trust or dependence is this. I'm going to put some weight on you. I'm going to lean on you. I'm depending on you to keep me up. And when you are three stories in the air, hanging on the 15th rung, you are literally depending on the structural integrity of that ladder or the person holding that ladder to keep you from falling down. You get the picture? You think it's easy then for us to place our weight, place our trust in some ladders that aren't so stable? As David would say, that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, and some among us trust in their, in their intellect, how smart they are, how much smarter they are than others. Some trust in their beauty or their strength. How many push-ups can you do? How many biceps can you curl? How good are you with sports and athletics? Some trust in their friends, some trust in their family, some trust in the country, some trust in social media and the popular voices around us, and yet one by one, as David would say, oftentimes we place our trust in things that just end up letting us down. They collapse and they fall. He says, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, hear what that means. Get that picture in your mind of that ladder. I trust in the Lord. I'm coming to God and I'm saying, God, I'm going to give you what means the most to me. I'm going to put some weight on you. I'm going to depend on you because I'm going to listen to your words. I'm going to trust in what you say here. And so I'm going to place my life and my choices. I'm going to give you my priorities and my plans. I'm going to give you my family. I'm going to give you my habits. I'm going to give you my heart. And I'm trusting that as I give these to you and I follow your words, that you're not going to let me down, that I'm not going to fall, that when I step out and I do exactly as what you're saying and I climb up upon you, that you're not going to make me collapse. And as David said, those who put their trust in the Lord rise and stand upright. That this is the one ladder, this is the one foundation that never falls and is always sure. Which is why Solomon would say, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear 
the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Don't trust. Don't trust in the princes and the the popular voices that are calling for your ears today. Trust in the Lord. Depend on the Lord, and he will make your path sure. One of my favorite contests every year is just about to gear up here in about a month. Lake Geneva, Wisconsin has a contest every single year where they take the snow that falls, and it's a snow sculpting contest. I love this one. I love it because it's just so unique. They take some of the most ordinary thing that exists, snow, and they make some of the most beautiful, intricate, amazing sculptures out of snow. Some of the animals and the people and the famous individuals. They spend hours upon hours sculpting and carving all of these amazing pieces, and then they're judged one by one and stand there in their glorious display. But you know the amazing thing is you can't see last year's sculptures this year. spend a lot of time on something very ordinary, and they make them a masterpiece, but then in a short amount of time, by the heat of the sun, they melt and are nothing but a puddle. God takes something so ordinary on each one of us, simple human beings, and he uses what he gave us. He uses our God-given talents to accomplish something magnificent. He allows us to be the ones who bear his word and to bear his image and to bless the world around us. We are his masterpieces. But we are only here for a brief time. Our time all too soon, much like the snow in Geneva, Wisconsin, will be gone. And so serve the purpose of your God while God has given you life. Serve the purpose of God in your generation. Let your life be defined not by your endless pursuits of things that the world says are needful and important, but let your life be driven by the glory of the God who gave it to you. In him we live, and in God we will survive. Thank you for listening so well this morning. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.